Welcome to Mzanzi Political Safari. My name is Lavesh and I will be your host. This podcast is focusing on helping South African voters make an informed choice when they cast their vote on 29th of May 2024. I will be interviewing various members from political parties to find out what their party offers and how they plan to fix South Africa. Today, I am joined by Irfan Mangera from Rise Mzanzi. Hi, Irfan. Thank you for taking the time out to join me for today's episode. Hi, Lavesh. Thanks so much. It's been awesome being here and I look forward to the discussion. And a big shout out to all your listeners. I think what you're doing is inspiring and we need more young people to engage in the politics. So happy to be here. Okay. So I just have about two or three questions for you that we're going to go through. So the first question that I actually have for you is in terms of Rise Mzanzi, what exactly is the party about? Is it more youth focused? Um, where does the party see itself after the 2024 elections? What's the outlook? Cool. Um, Rise has emerged because South Africans have felt that there's been no strong alternative in the political space that they believe will, will, will actually help solve the problems we are currently uh, experiencing. And so for two years, a number of us from business, civic organizations, religious groups, NGOs, social movements, um, and academia and so on came together and said, something has to give. We can't keep waiting for something to happen by miracle. We have to be the change that we want to see and, and be the people we've been waiting for. And so it, it has emerged that RISE is a youthful party. You're correct in saying we have a lot of young people, including myself, who is on the national leadership team. But the party in itself is a cuts across multiple communities, uh, age, gender, class. And so it, it, it is an inclusive party, but it's trying to build a modern form of political organizing within South Africa's already flooded uh, context. And I think it's been deliberate about saying we want to be a grassroots organization that's very rooted in communities that we serve and that we part and parcel of building. Awesome. That sounds fantastic. And let's take, for example, let's move towards something like education. We have a lot of students that don't actually manage to finish school a lot of unemployed graduates, et cetera. So how exactly would Rise Mzanzi go about fixing that? Or what is your plan to go about fixing that, helping students get jobs, helping underprivileged communities actually get their students out into the world, helping them finish school, fund their studies, et cetera? Absolutely critical uh, point of, of, of priority for us because what we don't do is look at education or any of the issues that South Africans are faced with within a vacuum. We look at it holistically and how it, it impacts at multiple levels. Um, Rise from the beginning and you know over the last 10 to 11 months now has set itself on a course to build a South Africa that is equal, just, safe, and unite, united and prosperous within one generation. We've been clear that all these challenges and perhaps the questions that you've asked are going to be tackled within a generation, not just within, there's no quick fixes to these problems. And so education being a fundamental part of that transition means that we have to invest heavily 
in the kind of quality of education we have. But the problem here in is most learners who actually should be in school have dropped out of school. The stats show that just about half of, of learners who start school don't end school with matric. This is a huge problem. It's a problem because the likely scenario and likelihood of earning a living and getting a job is reduced significantly if you don't have a matric certificate. So for us as RISE is number one, upskilling at least a million young people who've not been able to, to, to earn and, and develop a skill. And that skill could be, and I, I, I know we've heard this rhetoric around um, boiler making, around um, becoming mechanics and so on. So that practical teaching and learning is part and parcel of our learning experience and how we think we need to redesign our education system. So that by the time you already finish a matric certificate, you have left the school system with work experience, so to speak, because you've, you've developed skills. You've also been placed in sort of learning institutions that allow you to practice that skill and develop that skill further. So by the time you actually graduate, you already have yourself experience and a skill and a qualification and therefore become far more employable if you must. Now, additional to this is that there are deeper conversations, and I'm a qualified educator, so this is something you'll hear me speak passionately about, is that curriculum change comes with the intense agreement that it has to be the environment that allows for that curriculum to be delivered effectively. So for me, a school is the place where you, you trust to go, your kids to go to that's safe, that's, that's protected, where they are going to be focused on learning and, and that's all that they focused on and, and obviously socializing in an environment with friends. Unfortunately, in South Africa's context, that's not happening. Our, our schools have become spaces akin to ganglands where um, drugs are easily accessible. I, ca I come from a community now and, and being part of a drug and rehab center uh, board, we, we've seen the, an uptake of kids as young as 12 and 13 accessing drugs in school. So if we don't fix these social and societal and economic challenges, the school in itself becomes, um, I don't want to use the, the word useless, but it becomes so drained that you it's it, that qualification, the, the actual teaching you've been through, the training you've been to, through isn't effective in the end. And we see today the literacy and numeracy rates, are, numeracy rates are horrendous. And therefore, it has to be an investment in quality teaching and learning. And that means upskilling your teachers, having dedicated teaching colleges, all the, all the way from ECD level. A big problem that we're trying to solve is that we think 30% pass rates and that are the problem. That is not the problem. Fundamentally, you have to fix the foundation of learning in order for you to get the outcome you want at the end. ECD centers are so critical in this journey because if learners don't learn those motor skills, those development uh, uh, skills, and uh, you, you know part of the development of the brain from that point on, you start losing your ability to, to actually learn at a later point. And so this is what's happening in our current context where there's not enough investment where the foundational learning should happen in order for your 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 secondary and tertiary outputs to be as of a quality standard. 
So RISE has been, will prioritize a lot of these things. In addition to ensuring that your school environments are places where you are encouraged to be in, it shouldn't look like you're going to a prison when you're going to school. School should look welcoming. It must be an environment where you're proud to be there, where the South African nation building project can also be taken forward. And I say this because our schools barely host the South African flags. Our schools often don't have green grass where people can, where young kids can kick a ball or can play around. There's no shade, there's no trees. And this is unfortunately is a legacy of apartheid and colonialism. We have to acknowledge this reality because our communities were designed without thinking about how they should look. There was barely any trees in some parts. There were dust bowls in many. So I'll conclude by saying that the holistic approach to ensuring the environment has to be taken care of, meaning it should be an abomination that um, pet toilets exist in 30 years down in democracy, where young kids are dying and it, because they've, they've, they've fallen into these pet toilets and drowned. It's a stain on all of our conscience, not just those governing, but all of us who's not been able to hold them accountable. So I say this as a parting shot around education, that it must be holistic and it has to take into account multiple levels of intervention that the community must play a role in to ensure that there's teaching and learning taking place, that they're holding account of the officials who are in the public service, but also where we deal away with the kind of monopoly that some of the, perhaps as the union has, has taken over where, where young teachers who are trying to go and teach have also been victim to principals who they need to sleep with in order to get a job. So I'm giving and I'm painting you a big picture about how this problem is not just as complex as saying 30% pass rate is a problem. It's not. The reality is there are multiple layers to it and we need leaders who are going to engage the complexity of all these things and have the political will to want to solve them as it, as it should be. Thank you so much for that. I definitely learned some new things about the education field and that just from that. Um, like with regards to learning from a different level, um, the way our schools work, that it's not only the 30% pass rate that causes the issue, etc. All right, another question that I do have for you, this is something that's plaguing our country. It's going wild. Um, every other day we're looking at our schedules and we're hitting stage four load shedding. So how exactly would Rizum Zanzi look at uh, eliminating load shedding or at least reducing it so that we could stay at like a level one or two on a short term until we can rectify the problem as a whole. Sure. So in our manifesto, um, the third priority is about economy and jobs. And, and we've included in this conversation, how do we build prosperity for all? Because it's too little to imagine just saying, we'll sort this problem out but we still have inequality. We still have people suffering. So the framing of it for us is important in saying we want to live in a South Africa where anyone and any family can be prosperous so that we don't leave anyone behind. And so ESCOM and Transnet feature in this conversation because if we don't fix them, we're not going to grow the economy. If we don't fix um, the logistics arm of the state, the train tracks that 
keep goods um, that allow for goods to be easily transported, we stop, we're not going to create the investment we need, or we're not going to create the kind of um, we, the things we're buying, the goods we're buying from abroad will take months to get here. We, people eventually don't want those things. And so it potentially has, it already has, has, has major flaws be, and, and, and problems for us because it's limiting the growth of the economy. In fact, we're now shrinking the economy, less jobs are available, and this is, this is causing havoc on, on, on what's available and what we can spend on. ESCOM is critical. And I tied these two together because they both state-owned enterprises that are failing us and failing this economy. Now, for us to deal with load shedding, moving from stages to stages, we think that we need to move towards a lot more green energy solutions that are supported by the state's intervention. Now, there's no reason why in a country like ours, where there's so much of natural resource, there's so much of... Um, sunlight, but wind power, there's potential for hydro, et cetera, et cetera, that we don't have this to power up people's houses. The frustration you and I have and the ordinary citizen is that food goes off when we start seeing these load shedding schedules that are five, six hours and you come back and the challenge is those with privilege can say, okay, this month I'll do away with this food, I'll throw it away. But for the majority of South Africans, this is life or death. This is what we've spent hours and hours of hard labor earning, and now it's been wasted. And the state is not providing supplementary support for that. So it is a, it is a challenge. We think that all housing, particularly, um, so residential housing should have access to um, solar power. This is really possible. We saw the kind of initiatives, even globally, how these things work. Um, rolling that out should not be a, 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 a difficult task. In addition, I think some of the more bigger investments that need to be made is in the kind of green energy we're seeing. Um, but again, our diagnosis of this problem is not that we don't have the solutions to it. There's enough blueprints, there's enough plans, we have enough resources for it. The problem here in it is in why RISE leads our manifesto by saying we have a leadership crisis and a governance crisis in this country. The problem with ESCOM and Transnet is that they've not had effective leadership in there long enough to stabilize the organizations. The political interference is too high. And how then do you expect any implementation of plans to fix the problem? And so to reduce this, we need to, or to fix this, we need to change the leaders. We have to change the leaders. There's no two questions about, you know, we can have all sorts of beautiful ideas. Um, I love the climate. I work a lot with climate justice organizers and, and, and organizations. I believe that we have solutions to this already. And they are not complex ones. The problem is being able to eliminate the corruption because that corruption, when you've seen it from the Gupta times all the way till now, that people are benefiting of coal deals. People are benefiting of um, the trucks that are going up and down to the coal stations. And so they're forcing this crisis to continue where all of us must suffer because they want, they more, they greedy. They want more and more from, from the, the pot. Um, I'm just going to read you two of the key things that I think will I'll, I'll end off here. 
is that we need to ensure that new economic opportunities exist and we need to leverage off international climate change transitions, um, financial instruments. So there's a lot of global programs and, and processes now that have been prompted by other countries, particularly in Europe, who are saying we need to move towards a more green energy. And I think we can leverage off of that. I think we, we use it in accordance what we think is necessary, but those should not be in the form of loans. We need grant kind of funding so that we can start, we don't go into further debt. Um, medium and small businesses, in fact, should also benefit from such projects and therefore giving them the opportunities and the support to have solar solar power. And this, I think, will also help alleviate the burden on the grid that we're currently seeing. And I think for, for us to do that within five years is not a train smash or it's not, a, it's not rocket science. It really takes willpower from a government and leaders that are going to put their heads to, to, to the wheel and say, this is what must get done. This is our priority. Um, for us, a big challenge and, and diagnosis is recognizing that there's been no deep in investment into infrastructure. We're paying more on our budget for paying off debt for of loans that are also, you know, money being stolen instead of actually paying and, and building infrastructure. Now, if we're not going to upgrade water, electricity um, and other infrastructure, basic service delivery is not going to happen. And this is what also I tie this in because our cities, I don't know if, if you're in Johannesburg, but I'm certainly in Johannesburg and I see how bad the infrastructure is crumbling. A city that accounts for the biggest potential budget in the, I think, what is the third biggest in the continent is under so much of strain because we aren't able to keep the lights on. We've not put in we've not put investment into substations we've not put an investment into the grid in, as a whole and so now city power is now scrambling every day when load shedding hits there's an extended load shedding by two to four hours because some something blew at some substation or there was an explosion at another one it's all indication of the lack of infrastructure and the lack of investment into this type of, of, of it's it's not fashionable, right? You the, the politicians we have today who are in the governing party want to popularize as if they, they're solving really, you know, amazing problems. But this is an investment that is for 30, 40, 50 years down the line when we have to start seeing that um, that impact. So I get really frustrated when they try to shortcut the fact that they have been in charge, they should be investing in these in these programs and initiatives to get people electricity, and they choose not to. And the, the last parting shot for this, because you've asked about electricity, is that instead of seeing deliberate attempts to really change the way the electricity mix exists and, and is in the country, we're now seeing you know, a minister appointed when all of that money that this minister is getting and spending could be used to actually fix the dam, sorry for my language, fix the organizations and institutions that are broken. And we are seeing this as a crisis of leadership, not necessarily a crisis of ideas.
Thank you for that. Um, quite informative, uh, quite in-depth as well. Um, I do agree with you entirely that we should rather spend more money on fixing the infrastructure and that, because that is where a lot of our issues are, like you mentioned. Uh, because of crumbling infrastructure, that's why we have so much of load shedding and that. Um, because everything keeps on blowing. That's the excuse that we always have. Yet they keep on blaming it on people using too much of electricity. Whereas we should technically be able to support people to use the electricity that they pay for. Yeah. Um, and then one final question from you. Uh, in about two minutes, I'll give you about two minutes. Explain to our listeners why we should actually vote for Raizm Zanzi above any other party. What makes Rise different? Um, you're asking a politician to speak in two minutes. It's going to be tough. Um, <laughs> I'm also still learning to be a politician. But the good thing and beauty of RISE is that it's it's truly and genuinely a, a people's movement. Daily, I've never met a movement so committed to bringing about change who come from such diverse backgrounds, who want to see a South Africa that is united, uh, that is equal, that is built on the premise of justice, integrity, freedom, equality, and the rule of law. And I think RISE has provided an option to South Africans to say the quality of leadership is a servant leadership, a leadership that is going to be there at the front and center of ensuring they serve in the interest of the people. We've provided a blueprint and a manifesto that explains the depth of how we think about the problems and also how we go about already solving them, not just speaking about it, but about actually implementing. One of our key priorities, for example, is hunger. And we've been launching and building community gardens as a result of. So we've not been waiting for change to happen. We believe truly that change will happen when we as the people decide to make that change and not wait for someone else to come and deal with the problem. RISE is going to be on the ballot of all provinces and nationally as well. It has a youthful leadership. I myself, as I said, I'm 28 this year. Um, there's the youngest member of our national leadership collective team is Lawrence, who's 21. Many of us are in 20s, 30s and 40s. And that makes up a capable, competent group of leaders who come from varying backgrounds, who are either in, have, have led businesses or have built institutions who have actually served South Africa in multiple ways. This is the collective we think, coupled with those who have come through our public nominations process, we think can help lead South Africa, not just for this election, but for a generational mission into 2026, 2029 and beyond because we are tired of divisive politics. It's time now for a politics of care, politics of joy, and a politics that centers the people and communities first and foremost. If we don't fix it at that granular level where the individual, family, and community well-being is broken, we will not be able to heal from the divisions of the past. So RISE is embarked on this generational mission, and we hope that those listening can either join us, support us, and or even if you don't, we want this democracy to thrive. So regardless of not choosing us, you still have multiple choices. And we think it's your duty to make sure that you use this democracy and go out and vote on the 29th of May. 
Thank you so much, Irfan. I really enjoyed that interview. Uh, it was very informative. 